This is Michael Osterlink, and I'm speaking with Paul Saunders. He's Executive Director of the Center for National Interest. How are you doing, Paul? Uh, just terrific. Thanks. Great Thanks. to have you. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the Center for National Interest. Uh, well, uh, I'm the Executive Director of the Center. Uh, the Center is about 20 years old. Uh, it was founded by former President Richard Nixon uh, in uh, 1994 uh, to be a home for uh, foreign policy realism uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, <clears throat> I've worked at the center for uh, most of its existence with the uh, exception of a, a period of time that I spent as a political appointee at the State Department during the George W. Bush administration. Nice. So it promotes foreign policy realism. Mm -hmm. Can you make a distinction between what that is and neocon foreign policy or liberal interventionist foreign policy where does that fit sure sure well <clears throat> I think the uh, uh, key principle of, of foreign policy realism is the concept of the American national interest and uh, you know unfortunately our political debate uh, uh, has evolved over uh, uh, the last few decades to a situation in which uh, uh, anyone says that anything that they want to do is a vital national interest to the United States. <clears throat> uh, we take a uh, somewhat more uh, conservative view uh, of what American uh, national interests are, and particularly vital national interests. You know, when you call something a vital national interest, then uh, it really uh, better be vital. Uh, by which I mean uh, potentially compromising the survival of the United States of America uh, in its current form or the uh, well-being and freedom of its citizens. Uh, <clears throat> that's a vital national interest. Uh, when uh, uh, you start talking about, uh, for example, uh, creating democracy in uh, uh, another country somewhere else, uh, I would argue that that is uh, generally not uh, a vital national interest of the United States. So in that case, uh, you would be opposed to nation building in Iraq or nation building in Afghanistan, for instance? Well, uh, you know, I, I think nation building uh, in general uh, is a very challenging undertaking. Uh, and particularly for anyone who is a, a philosophical conservative, conservative, I'm sorry, and uh, has questions about uh, the uh, uh, extent of the role of the U.S. government, uh, who recognizes uh, the uh, uh, infallibility, so the uh, uh, lack of infallibility, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, the uh, uh, inherent imperfection, let me put it that way, uh, of human beings and human works. Uh, anyone who looks at the uh, great challenges that we have in our own society and the degree to which we uh, struggle uh, in our own country uh, to try to resolve them. Uh, the idea that we can go to someone else's country, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, we don't know uh, as well as we know uh, our own society and our own country, 
uh, and uh, to try to establish uh, in that environment, uh, 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 you know, uh, so, some kind of a, a, a new society or, uh, uh, you know, the idea that, that we know better than the people who live there uh, what is uh, appropriate for them. Uh, it's hard for me not to be skeptical about that. How would the pushback, I would imagine, from uh, people of the neoconservative persuasion that ungovernable territories or those that are governed by, quote-unquote, our enemies are, are a threat to us? How would you respond to that? Well, uh, you know, I think that comes down to how one defines uh, American national interests. Uh, and it also comes down to uh, questions like costs, benefits, uh, probability uh, of success. Uh, so uh, yes, in a general sense, uh, it's better for the United States and for most others to have order rather than disorder. Uh, and uh, to have, uh, uh, you know, territories that are governed uh, rather than not being governed. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, is it inherently a major threat to the United States that a particular space uh, is, uh, is not governed? Uh, you know, if you take a position that nowhere on the entire planet can be ungoverned, unstable, whatever else. You're defining uh, an extraordinarily uh, ambitious foreign policy and national security uh, agenda for the United States, and, and something that uh, you know I suspect most taxpayers uh, would uh, uh, blanch at. Well, aren't you now just, uh, describing the Bush-Obama foreign policy? Because it seems to me that we have been intervening all over the world in both ungovernable areas and areas that are governed, but not the way we like it. Well, I think it's become uh, uh, close to uh, conventional wisdom uh, that we need to uh, fix every problem and right every wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, it's, it's understandable uh, that many people find that uh, attractive. Uh, it's a noble calling. Uh, the, the problem is that uh, a, a mission like that uh, is much more uh, attractive in an abstract sense uh, than it is uh, in a practical sense, I mean in actually uh, trying to do it. Uh, and I think one uh, key component of foreign policy realism, actually, uh, is uh, how do you evaluate whether our foreign policy uh, is a good foreign policy or not? Uh, I, as a foreign policy realist, I would evaluate our foreign policy on the basis of the results. Do we succeed in doing what we say that we are setting out to do. Uh, I think there are a number of other people uh, who uh, evaluate whether our foreign policy is a good foreign policy or a bad foreign policy uh, based on our intentions. Uh, 
So uh, uh, that, to my mind, is the key standard. Uh, do we want a standard of intentions or do we want a standard of results? If we want a standard of results, uh, if we look at a, a society like Iraq or a society like Afghanistan uh, where uh, we invested billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, and uh, 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 thousands of lives and, and uh, much more than that, you know, if you talk about uh, uh, injuries and and uh, uh, disruption of uh, families, mm -hmm. uh, and that's just the Americans. I mean, that's you're you know talking uh, even at that point uh, about the people who actually live in those countries, right, right, right. Uh, and uh, uh, the impact uh, on them, uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, their uh, ability to have uh, voice. Uh, in uh, uh, ha how that process moved forward and uh, uh, what price uh, they pay to achieve uh, our vision. So, uh, you know, I, I think from that perspective, from the standard of results, uh, we made enormous investments uh, in those two countries. And it's not immediately apparent uh, in either case, uh, that we accomplished what we said we were trying to do uh, when we started the process. And I would say that we, particularly, that we accomplished what the uh, neoconservative uh, advocates uh, of uh, our involvement in those two countries uh, said that they wanted to do. It's interesting to think through or making distinctions between results and intentions. And it leads me to wonder, someone who's a results-oriented like you, looking for realistic foreign policy, would, be, would look at history and analyze over time our interventions and see how one has an effect and the other has an effect on the other. Whereas possibly those who are not results-oriented but intention-oriented would not do that. And I'm thinking... You're talking about Iraq, you know, Iraq's at the stage for ISIS, and then a whole host of other problems that have emerged as a result of that. The intervention in Libya has now destabilized North Africa and caused a whole set of problems there. Um, talk to me about how you look at history and how we should, as Americans, look at history and to better understand what we've done, what we're doing, and what we should be doing. Sure. Well, you know, certainly I think looking at history and thinking about history is uh, incredibly important. Uh, you know, I, I think the uh, 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 people who uh, strongly advocated the war in Iraq, or for that matter, the, the uh, uh, nation-building effort uh, in Afghanistan and uh, I uh, don't have a particular problem with the initial decision to, to go into Afghanistan, which I think was entirely appropriate. I think uh, a after that we got uh, uh, a little bit too ambitious uh, with the follow-up. But if you look at the, the uh, position of the people who uh, uh, were calling for those activities, uh, they would essentially say, well, you know, you, you just didn't do it right. 
uh, and uh, President Bush should have done this and this and that, and President Obama shouldn't have done, you know, that and that and that. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, uh, to a point, uh, I think that's a valid criticism. Uh, the problem is uh, with uh, taking that view that the United States of America uh, is a democracy. Taking democracies to war uh, is not an easy thing. Actually, let me revise that. Shouldn't Taking <laughs> democracies to war actually is a rather easy yeah, thing. But it shouldn't be. Uh, well, uh, no, I would add, I would add something. Mm. Keeping democracies mm. at war for extended periods of time is not an easy thing at all. So we, we live in a society and in a political system where uh, 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 it is relatively uh, easy for a, uh, a group of uh, uh, moralistic uh, uh, activists, basically, to uh, generate public support for American intervention. Uh, what they uh, uh, are much less able to do is to maintain that support uh, over time. So it, it actually kind of creates a, a, a dynamic uh, that leads to unsatisfying interventions. Uh, because there are certain people who uh, uh, want to intervene in a number of different conflicts and they're, they're often successful in uh, uh, making that happen. Uh, but uh, uh, they can never quite get everything uh, uh, that they want. And uh, over time, uh, people get more and more uh, uh, tired of that. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it becomes harder and harder to, uh, to sustain. And uh, that is a very self-defeating uh, dynamic uh, for the United States of America. Uh, my personal view, <clears throat> and uh, I would not call myself, by the way, a non-interventionist. That's a separate uh, group of people. Uh, who basically don't want to intervene anywhere, uh, you know, I, I'm prepared for the United States to use military force internationally. Uh, certainly in cases when our vital national interests uh, are at stake uh, and when we determine that that is the most appropriate uh, tool uh, to uh, uh, advance or defend those interests. And in some cases it might be, and in other cases it might not be. Uh, or, you know, in other situations where perhaps lesser interests are at stake, uh, but the cost-benefit uh, balance uh, is uh, heavily in our favor, uh, we uh, uh, have good reasons to believe uh, that it will succeed. Uh, and uh, uh, that, that it won't uh, compromise uh, other important objectives uh, that we're trying to accomplish. 
I can imagine even circumstances when I would be prepared for intervention on uh, what I would call kind of strictly moral grounds. And if you look back into the 1990s at uh, uh, the situation that unfolded in Rwanda, the Rwandan genocide, uh, uh, I think many people believe in retrospect that that was a situation where a very minimal uh, and uh, uh, relatively safe to uh, American personnel uh, intervention could have stopped uh, a lot of people from being slaughtered. Uh, why did that not happen? Uh, it didn't happen uh, because the United States had gone into another one of these great ungovernable, uh, ungoverned uh, spaces, uh, Somalia, uh, and was trying uh, uh, to establish uh, order there. Uh, ended up uh, 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 kind of essentially taking sides in a civil war while sort of pretending to ourselves that we were a neutral party. Uh, and uh, uh, that obviously led to uh, some very tragic consequences uh, for uh, Amer the uh, American military personnel, and uh, you know everybody knows about the Black Hawk Down mm -hmm. uh, incident. Uh, and you know that's why uh, the Clinton administration uh, uh, wasn't more forward-leaning on Rwanda. And I think it's you were talking about history and consequences of our choices. Uh, that's, uh, I think, a relatively clear case uh, where our choices had consequences. One of the consequences, I think this to be true, you can confirm this, is that bin Baden had some fighters in Somalia, and they got the idea that we were pretty much a paper tiger. You know, you scare us, politically we run, um, and the, it, it emboldened them. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I think many people have have made that case, uh, and uh, 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 I, I think it, it illustrates that situation and some of our more recent events. It illustrates the fact that when you spend a lot of money, time, effort, and political capital doing things that are uh, peripheral. Uh, it can actually end up preventing you from doing things that are much more important. Uh, we have a situation now where uh, Russia has annexed Crimea and there's basically a low-level war uh, underway uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, I think that situation has gotten uh, 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 as bad as it has gotten in part because the President of the United States said very clearly at the outset uh, that the United States would not become involved militarily in that situation. Now, do I want the United States to be involved in that? No. Uh, but my, my point uh, is a different one. Uh, my point is that why did the President say that? Uh, he said that because the American people, and particularly his Democratic base, uh, are uh, uh, very tired uh, of military interventions 
and uh, he basically put uh, uh, reassuring uh, uh, public opinion and especially his political base uh, ahead of uh, some uh, uh, fairly important uh, foreign policy uh, developments uh, that were happening in Ukraine and and have it, it, had the president uh, uh, taken a stronger rhetorical position at that time, uh, there may have been uh, a little bit greater uh, element of uncertainty on Putin's part that could have mm. uh, somewhat constrained Russian behavior. And I don't want to push that argument too far mm -hmm. uh, because uh, uh, there are a lot of other reasons uh, uh, based on the Obama administration's foreign policy that Putin may not have expected a strong reaction from the United States. Uh, but most of those reasons tie back to this same fundamental uh, issue uh, of the, the president's uh, great uh, wariness uh, about foreign interventions, uh, uh, largely for political reasons. I think the, the key uh, about intervention is to be selective and to be successful. <laughs> well, speaking of selective, you talk about vital national interest. Can you give me an idea of presently, we're in April 2015, what, give me two examples. What are our vital national interests? Well, uh, I would say one vital national interest of the United States, which is a pretty uh, clear one, uh, is to prevent any use of nuclear weapons uh, against the territory of the United States or our military forces stationed uh, overseas. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I say that because uh, I believe that even one uh, nuclear weapon uh, detonating, uh, particularly in the continental United States, uh, would change our way of life uh, fundamentally uh, because of the, uh, the aftermath uh, of that situation, both economically but also politically, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, impact that that could have on our free society. <clears throat> Uh, another vital interest, I would say, is the uh, stability of the international financial system. Uh, the United States is one of the, the principal architects, if not the principal architect, of the, the modern international financial system. Uh, we're also one of the main beneficiaries of that system. Uh, and a collapse of the, the uh, uh, global financial system uh, would do severe damage. Uh, to the American economy and the future prosperity of the American people. What kind of interventions would you see in the international system on behalf of the United States to strengthen it? Uh, you mean military intervention well, or I, just, well, uh, just general, what can we do? Yeah. Well, uh, I think <clears throat> one of the big problems uh, that we have right now is great confusion uh, about what it means to be a leader, uh, why Americans viewed their own country as an international leader, why other countries viewed America as an international leader. And uh, the uh, 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 
people in the United States who favor frequent military interventions have been arguing basically since the end of the Cold War uh, that America is a global leader when it uses force uh, and that when we do not use force we're abandoning our international leadership and for much of the last 20 years that's been actually a rather successful argument for them. Uh, the problem is it may actually have been a little bit too successful uh, because uh, on one hand uh, it's kind of persuaded uh, uh, Americans who are getting tired of uh, uh, frequently being at war with other countries that well you know if this is what leadership is uh, maybe I don't want that anymore uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that you've seen actually on both sides uh, of the political spectrum uh, growing uh, resistance to, uh, uh, to, to, to intervention and uh, 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 kind of a growing willingness uh, actually on the, on the part of a lot of people to express skepticism. The other problem is when you look around the world at a lot of our allies uh, and uh, others, we've kind of trained a lot of them uh, also uh, into the same kind of, of thinking, you know, that uh, uh, we really need to come, the United States, to come in here and, uh, you know, bomb them or give us uh, uh, this and this and that or, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, when the United States doesn't use force, then uh, uh, it kind of raises doubts on the part of our allies uh, about how committed we are or how much we care or, or whatever else, uh, which are, are totally unnecessary because this is kind of a, a phenomenon that we've basically manufactured ourselves uh, by taking uh, such an interventionist approach. So for, for me, uh, step one actually is to redefine uh, what American international leadership uh, is. And as a realist, you know, and again, not uh, a non-interventionist, and I think a lot of non-interventionists would say, you know, why, why do we need to, you know, to be an international leader? I, I think actually we benefit from being an international leader because we built the international system, financial, political, and otherwise, and uh, we built it to our specifications in, in most cases. And again, you know, we're the, we're the main beneficiary uh, of it. So uh, if we uh, 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 don't make an effort to preserve that by leading it, then, you know, there are other people who may want to define things a little bit differently, and we may be considerably less satisfied uh, with uh, those arrangements. So I, I think actually it is quite important to just be a leader. The key is what does that actually mean? And uh, uh, I would, again, you know, look back to our history and certainly part of it is uh, our military power. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think the pendulum has swung uh, 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 too far in that direction uh, and we need to think about 
uh, our economy and our society uh, as models uh, that other people want to emulate. That's how you really lead, uh, is by inspiring people, not by, uh, uh, you know, scaring the heck out of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, or uh, uh, kind of cowing uh, uh, some into submission and encouraging others uh, basically to suck up to you so that uh, uh, A, you won't do the same thing to them or uh, B, uh, they think that they might be able to get you uh, 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 involved in some of their disputes uh, 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 rather than focusing on our own priorities. So, uh, that's what I see as really essential, is redefining our leadership, uh, getting our own uh, house in order uh, domestically. When you say uh, dom domestically, would one example be the $18 trillion debt? Well, I, I think the, the debt and the, the general fiscal situation of the country, the economic situation in the country, I, I think that's uh, uh, probably number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, why do people think uh, uh, around the world that America is quote-unquote in decline? You know, part of it uh, had certainly had to do with uh, uh, our, the challenges we were facing in Iraq and Afghanistan. But when did that whole narrative really take off? It took off after the mortgage crisis and the financial crisis. That's when that took off. That's when people in China started to think that the United States was in decline. That's when they started to get overconfident about their own position in the international system. That's when all of their uh, uh, latest round of uh, uh, assertive uh, pressure uh, on their neighbors and particularly on Japan that's when that all started and uh, I, I think that's a big part of, of why it started so I think getting the economy uh, uh, really moving uh, is incredibly important and look you know the economy of China is still considerably smaller than the economy of the United States China's got a 7% growth rate, you know, which is certainly quite high, and it's not likely that the United States is going to have a 7% growth rate anytime soon. But, you know, we had a 3-4% growth rate on a pretty sustained basis uh, in uh, the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And if the United States had uh, that kind of sustained economic growth over an extended period of time, uh, I, I think it could really contribute to, to changing a lot of these psychological uh, dynamics uh, in the international system. And that's why I think personally that things like the energy revolution in the United States uh, are also just incredibly important because, you know, uh, uh, people have this narrative of the United States in decline. But when you actually look at the United States, I mean, here you've got uh, this just amazing development in the energy sector. 
Uh, we're the world's number one gas producer. We're not far off of becoming the world's number one uh, oil producer too. And it's because of things that it, it, it has happened only in the United States and it's happened because of some of the things that make us really special as a country. Uh, the uh, uh, power of the private sector, uh, innovation and uh, uh, science and technology and all of that, but also actually quite crucially, uh, property rights. Because, you know, in the United States, people own the uh, uh, mineral rights, generally speaking, under the, the land that they own. And in a lot of the rest of the world, that, that's not true. Uh, and the government usually owns those rights. And uh, so, you know, if somebody discovers oil or gas or whatever on your land in the United States, you know, uh, you kind of might or might not want to participate in that. You can sort of make your own decision. But I think a lot of people would, would see that that would be a, uh, a big uh, opportunity for them. Whereas in a lot of other countries, it's not an opportunity for you at all. Uh, and uh, it's entirely for somebody else's benefit and just leads to a lot of headaches mm -hmm. uh, for you. Uh, so, you know, things like uh, our system of property rights, things like uh, our uh, uh, patent system and intellectual property uh, protections, things like our private sector and regulations and our financial markets and how all of those other things work, that, that's part of what makes this country really special. And that's why uh, uh, something like that uh, happened in the United States uh, and hasn't happened in uh, so many other places, certainly not to anything like uh, the same uh, extent. And I think that's the kind of narrative uh, that we need for America. Right. Wow. So I know that the your center produces a journal mm -hmm. in which a lot of these topics from energy, foreign policy, defense policy are discussed. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the journal, how folks can find it? Sure. As well as the website directly to your organization? No, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, uh, the magazine is called The National Interest. Uh, it's at www.nationalinterest.org. Uh, it is a, uh, a foreign policy magazine. It comes out in print six times per year. Uh, we also have on the website, and I gave the address, uh, uh, commentary every day, usually five, six uh, uh, original contributions every day. Uh, the uh, uh, editorial philosophy of the magazine is a realist one, uh, but we do publish a very broad range of different perspectives, uh, not, not only foreign policy realism. We publish inter uh, you know, uh, neoconservatives, we publish liberal interventionists, we publish all, all kinds of other views. There are many other schools of foreign policy thought, and I wouldn't want to limit it just to those. <clears throat> so there are a number of other uh, points of view. Uh, the uh, website, uh, in particular, uh, uh, gets uh, a, a great deal of traffic and uh, is really uh, one of the top uh, online uh, foreign policy magazines. 
You're also on Twitter. <clears throat> That's right. So oh well, I, I'm I'm at uh, uh, 1796 farewell. <laughs> That's my my Twitter handle uh, because I'm a, a great admirer of George Washington's farewell address, uh, of course, from 1796 mm-hmm. when he left office. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. No, thank you very much, Michael.